So we've been in this series for a few weeks. This is week number 13, and we're in chapter number 13. I didn't intend it to be so synchronized with the different chapters, but as I've been studying through the chapters of Matthew, they have uh, found themselves into neat little packages here that I think is worth our time. And today, you're going to see how chapter 13, from the very beginning to the very end, really communicates one basic concept. But as we prepare for that, let me just remind you where we've been so far in this study. We've been looking at Matthew reporting to us the story of Jesus. And Jesus, Matthew is trying to convince us, is the king. From the very beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew is writing to super Jewish people, Jews who are so so much into the super Jewishness of being a Jew, that they might know that the number 14 means the word David in the Hebrew language. Now, if you were a Greek-speaking Jew in the first century, and you knew that David, the number, uh, the letters for David in the Hebrew Bible meant 14, then you might be just a super Jew, because you might not even know the Hebrew alphabet, but you would know that Hebrew, uh, the letters DVD meant the number 14. You might know that, but if you did, you'd be a super Jew, and that's what Matthew does in chapter 1. He tries to emphasize that Jesus is the king above all the kings. He's a king three times better than David. And then as you continue to go through the next few chapters, you find out that Jesus is a prophet better than Moses. He's a prophet better than Elijah. He's a teacher better than Moses. And every time Matthew is comparing Jesus to someone in the Old Testament, Jesus wins. The problem is that every time Matthew compares Jesus to someone in the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't just win, he wins in a completely unexpected way. Jesus might be better than David, but he was born in a manger and lived life on the run and never sat in a palace. Even though David the king was a conqueror, David the king was a hero, David the king had a palace and he raised, he, he expanded the kingdom. Jesus didn't do that kind of king work. Moses was the lawgiver who stood up in front of the people and he gave the Ten Commandments and all the other laws, but Jesus was a lawgiver who said, listen, unless you're exactly like God, it's not worth even trying. You have to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And unless you're exactly like God, it's not even worth trying. But I'll tell you what. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will say, I'll give you a law. You ain't good enough. That's the law. But if you recognize your poverty, then you can be saved anyway. That's Jesus' message. And so every single time we see Jesus, we see a king who's different from the one that we expected. But there's just one more thing. He's also the king we didn't want. We want a king who will fight our battles, defeat our enemies, and take our side. And Jesus repeatedly does not. He repeatedly doesn't fight the battles that the people want him to fight. He repeatedly doesn't oppose the enemies. In fact, he welcomes the enemies. He invites the enemies to join him. He shows love to the enemies. Jesus is the king that we don't want because we want the one who can stand up for us and Jesus is the one who says, no, you stand up for others. Jesus promotes sacrifice and we want a king of victory. And so we've covered this ground. We've covered this difficult ground of whether or not Jesus is the kind of king you could follow. But here's a different question. The different question is, do I want this kind of king? Do I want this kind of king? Do I want this kind of kingdom? Because you get to make a choice. My job today is to create in you some fear of missing out. Because if you miss out on this kingdom, you are missing out on the greatest thing ever. In fact, I'll give you just the statement right up at the beginning of what Matthew is trying to do with chapter 13. The greatest thing of all time of all time, is here happening right now, but you might miss it. The greatest thing of all time is happening right now, but you might miss it. Now, if you're like me, and you do have a fear of missing out, you want to know how you might miss out on this one, and how to make sure you don't miss out on this one. If you're like other people, and you don't have any fear of missing out, then hopefully by the end of today, you will have a little bit of fear, and you will not want to miss out. 
Because in this passage, we are going to see both that the kingdom is the greatest thing ever, and we will also see that being outside of the kingdom is the worst thing ever. But it's happening right here, right now. And don't miss out. Now, there's just one problem. Uh, When Matthew writes down chapter 13, he writes it down in a lot of little tiny stories, parables. So instead of lots of miracle stories, Matthew is giving us parables. These are stories that Jesus would tell that had a spiritual point. Usually, the parable involved something that was surprising. There's always something in the parable that represents something about God, and there's something in the parable that represents something about people. And so Jesus would tell these stories. Today, we're going to find out why he tells these stories, but Jesus would tell these stories. And Matthew wrote down all these different, well, a bunch of these different stories. So chapter 13 is kind of a jumble of these stories. Now, I think there is a logical reason for why Matthew wrote them down in the, in the order he wrote them down. We are pretty sure that Jesus must have told these same stories lots of different times in lots of different ways. And if you've been with us any moment uh, for the past couple of weeks, then you might know that Matthew wasn't so concerned about getting everything in the right order. He was just trying to get all the themes together. But Jesus might have told this thing in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different times. And so Matthew writes it down. Now, our challenge is that there's just a couple major themes in chapter 13 that if you read it from beginning to end, you might miss. And so I'm going to rearrange the chapter for us. We're going to be jumping around to different parts of chapter 13, and so that's why it'll help you if you have your app open. I'm going to put all the passages up on the screen. The first one we're going to start with is here in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. And so we're going to read the entire chapter. We're just not going to read the entire chapter from top to bottom. We're going to jump around just a little bit, so you're going to have to stick with me on this. But let's get into it. Here we go. Verse 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, uh, when I was a kid, I remembered hearing this story about a guy who found a pearl and he sold everything that he had so he could go get the pearl, and I thought that was the stupidest thing in the world. Let's just be honest. I mean, if I were to sell my house, my car, all of my assets, all of the things that I have available to me, and emptied out my savings account for a single solitary pearl, that would not be, let's admit it, smart. Because the next day after I buy the pearl, I'm going to need to eat. And you can't use the pearl to get one meal because that pearl is worth an entire life's acquisitions. So as a kid, this never made sense to me. It just sounded completely ludicrous and outlandish. Jesus, why would you tell us the kingdom is like something that I can get nothing out of? That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is this. If you knew what the kingdom was worth. You would literally give up everything. See, that's the thing about this pearl. In order for you to evaluate the worth of a pearl, you have to be a really skilled merchant. Jesus is talking about this merchant who sees the pearl and he recognizes the value that no one else sees. And so the merchant is willing to sell everything he has to get just that pearl because he knows that everything he has is not worth as much as that pearl. And if he can get that pearl for everything he has, he has instantly doubled his wealth. One of my uh, fear of missing out moments has been happening this last year consistently. I have been missing out on the stock market. And every time the stock market does something stupid to go up another double, then I feel like, oh no, I've missed out again. And then I'm worried, should I jump in now? No, because it's going to dip again. I've been that way with the cryptocurrency craze. I don't know if you guys are into this thing. But um, I learned about Bitcoin like 10 years ago. I turned on my computer to start mining Bitcoin, and my computer wasn't powerful at the time, powerful enough at the time, and I wasn't patient enough at the time for me to mine the Bitcoin. But if I had mined even one single solitary Bitcoin back 10 years ago, it'd be worth $50,000 right now. 
I mean, that's insane. That's not fear of missing out. That's regret. But it gives me this sense. It gives me this sense that there's a value out there that I don't have. And that's what this guy felt about that pearl. By just getting the pearl, he doubles his wealth or more. See, Jesus' point in these two statements is simply this. If you knew how valuable the kingdom of God was, you would sacrifice literally everything in your life to get it. And luckily, the guy got the treasure in the field and the guy got the pearl. But it raises a question for me. What if the guy didn't see the value? What if the guy didn't find the treasure in the field? What if the guy didn't have enough wealth to purchase the thing that he needed to purchase. What if he missed out? See, there's a threat buried inside of these stories too. If you see the value of the kingdom, then you'll realize it's worth more than anything else you have. But if you don't see the value of the kingdom, you're going to miss out on the most valuable thing in the world. Let's keep reading. There's this next little passage. We're going to jump over something, but we're in verse 51 now. It says this. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Now, they didn't. Anytime someone replies yes to Jesus, they're probably either lying or misguided. But anyway, yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Jesus is talking about teachers of the law. And he says that he has a message that if the teachers of the law accepted Jesus' message, they would have both the old treasures and the new treasures. See, this is our problem. You might see the new treasure, but you're afraid that in order to get the new treasure, you have to get rid of the old treasure. You're afraid that the old treasure has to leave in order for you to get the new treasure. And if you saw the value of the kingdom, you'd be willing to do that. But Jesus says about these teachers of law, he says, no, they've got some really great old treasure and I don't need them to lose that treasure, all the teaching of God's word from Moses and and the others, you know, the, the whole Old Testament, that's great treasure, Jesus is saying. But there's a new treasure that you could be missing out on. Or let's go to this next verse here in verse 31. It says this, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. Sometimes you guys have heard the the phrase faith like a mustard seed. Jesus does talk about faith like a mustard seed in another passage. This is talking about the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is this thing that you can barely sense any of its value. But if you plant it in the ground, it becomes this immense immensely valuable thing. But let's keep going. He says, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. All of this life can understand the value of this tree, and so they will come. But he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus is talking about the fact, well, first of all, you've got to realize that uh, the yeast they had back then was not the yeast we have now. We have this dried, active yeast. The yeast they had back then was cultured yeast from the air, just like a sourdough starter. So if any of you this last year learned your sourdough skills, that's the kind of yeast they used back then. So here's this woman. She's got flour and water, about 60 pounds of flour and water, and she takes some of this starter that she's got, and she mixes it in there, and it works all throughout the dough, and the yeast does its thing throughout the entire dough. It makes its way through the entire dough. Now, why is Jesus telling us this part? Because this doesn't have anything to do with treasure, right? This doesn't have anything to do with like, you know, a pearl of great price. Jesus' point is this. Either a mustard seed or yeast, these things that are so insignificant to you, they result in something incredibly significant. And, here's the key, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. There are a lot of people who, when they're confronted with the kingdom of God, they feel like they can resist it. They feel like they can maybe halt it. They feel like maybe they can wait for it. But here's the thing. Jesus says the kingdom is coming on its own terms and on its own time. 
And so you can't stop it, but you can miss it. This tree will grow and you won't enjoy the shade. The yeast will get all the way through the dough, but you won't enjoy the bread. The pearl will continue to be valuable, but you won't have it. The treasure will continue to be wonderful, but you won't have it. Jesus is like, the kingdom of God is on its way. It's the greatest thing ever. It's more valuable than anything else in your life, but you might miss it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss it. And Jesus warns us about missing it in verse 47. Take a look at this. In 47, it says, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And it's like, you think he's going to be talking about treasure, right? Because it's another one of these things where a great deal of value has come in. And so now it seems like it's that. But no, keep going. He says, Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you've ever wondered about the reality of heaven and hell, I want you to know something very, very clear. The entirety of our concept of hell comes only from the lips of Jesus. There is no Old Testament passage that tries to describe what hell is like. There is no New Testament teaching that gets into the details of trying to teach or explain what hell is like. Literally, the only thing we know about the afterlife when it comes to the final destination of the righteous and the final destination of the wicked comes from Jesus' lips himself. He's the one who says there will be this fire. He's the one who says there will be this weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's the one who says you don't want to be there. You don't want to miss out on the kingdom. See, Jesus is trying to warn us about the person who doesn't know the value of the pearl, the person who doesn't see the value of the treasure. Jesus is trying to warn us about these things, and ultimately he's trying to warn us that if you don't make it into the kingdom, the alternative is horrific. And you don't want that. Again, Jesus doesn't give us a whole bunch of details about what hell is like, but he makes it very clear that you might be there and I might end up there unless I somehow am brought into the kingdom of God. Now, I've already made reference this morning to the passage in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I would highly encourage you to read some of those passages, listen to some of those messages, to reaffirm the fact that your number one way of getting into the kingdom is recognizing your own spiritual poverty and crying out to God to welcome you into his kingdom. That's the number one thing. But Jesus wants to make it very clear Because he doesn't want you to miss out. He doesn't want anyone to miss out on this kingdom. And so he tries to go a little bit more detailed. And let's pick it up in verse 24. Verse 24 says this. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So an enemy has come and done something. And then he goes away. Let's keep going. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus tells this parable but does not explain it. Immediately after this, Matthew takes a detour. 
And Matthew takes a little moment to tell us something about why Jesus spoke in parables. I'm going to skip over that. We'll get back to that a little bit later. So I want to show you the explanation for this parable we just read. There's this farmer. He sows his seed, and it's got wheat out there, but someone else put some weeds out there. And then the, the principle is don't pull up the weeds that are next to the wheat because you might destroy the wheat along with the weeds. You can't tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds when they're really young. And on top of it, if you're out there trampling through the whole field to try to get the weeds, you might end up trampling some of the wheat also or pulling some of that wheat up accidentally too. So just let it go. You can't tell the difference. Just we'll wait until later when we'll sort things out. But let's let Jesus explain it by skipping to verse 36. It says this, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. Remember that is Jesus's code word for himself. He is the son of man, which means he is the divine God of Daniel's vision. When Daniel has the vision of the Ancient of Days, he says, I saw one who looked like a son of man approaching the Ancient of Days, and he received dominion and glory, and the world worshipped him. Jesus uses the word son of man to refer to himself, but he uses the word son of man to refer to himself as the Messiah who is also God. He knows what he means when he says that phrase. Anyway, let's keep going. It says, the field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Let's keep going. He says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Again, Jesus is trying to let us know that there is coming a day of judgment. And when that day of judgment comes, some are going to be brought into the kingdom of the father and some are going to be burned and experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is the one who says he knows this because he's going to be that judge. Now, you might have a, a difficult time accepting this. And we talked about that last week, about how we have to accept Jesus on his own terms. We have to accept Jesus for who he is. You might have a difficult time accepting this. It's a hard thing to accept that a human being walking around on the earth claims to be the Messiah, claims to be God, claims to be the final judge of the world, claims to know something about heaven and hell that no one else has ever known. That's a hard thing to accept. I can get that you might have a hard time accepting that. And Jesus knows that you might have a hard time accepting that. And Matthew knows that you might have a hard time accepting that. And so that's why this passage exists, because he's just about to talk about that very dilemma that we all have. But I'm going to give you a hint. We know something about the end of the story that Matthew didn't know when Jesus first said these words. When Matthew wrote down these words, he knew it. But when he first heard Jesus say them, he didn't know it. But you and I know it. And it's this. If the guy who promises that there is a heaven and a hell, if the guy who says that he is God, if there's a guy who says that he is all of these things, that the kingdom is the greatest thing ever, if that guy also predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, he's someone you could pay attention to. If he doesn't pull it off, well, then there's no big deal. Just keep moving along. He was a crazy person. But if he predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, then I'm just going to go along with whatever else he says. And so Jesus claims that he is going to be the ultimate judge. But here's the thing. In everything we've looked at so far, we haven't had a clear picture of how to get in and how to miss it. Other than the fact that there are some people who notice something and receive it. They notice the treasure. They notice the pearl. I'm going to say the first way you could miss out on the kingdom is from lack of receptivity. Lack of receptivity. 
There, there's something in you where you're like, I just can't accept that. I just can't accept that this is the, the Messiah that we're supposed to have. I just can't accept that Jesus is God in the flesh. There's something that I can't accept. And if you can't accept it, if you can't receive it, you're not alone. You might have a really good reason for not accepting it and not receiving it. Let me show you a couple people who had a really, really good reason for not receiving Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 13 at the end. This is the very last section of the chapter. It says this. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, at this point, you're thinking they're amazed in a positive way. Wow, where did he get such power? But they're not. You're going to see that in just a little bit. They asked, and as you keep reading, you see this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. You see, they weren't asking this question because they were really curious. Jesus, where'd you get your superpowers? Tell us your origin story. That's not what they wanted to know. They knew his origin story. Jesus, we've been with you. We've watched you grow up. I changed your diaper Jesus, I babysat for you. Who do you think you are? And they took offense at him. Keep reading. It says this. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. A lot of times we focus on that last word, lack of faith. And then we Christianize it. We say, okay, so what you need is you need to have faith in Jesus. So someone tells you something about Jesus and you just accept it on faith. You just blindly, okay, yeah, that's fine. I'll just accept it. And sometimes we, we narrow Christianity down to this idea of I learned something, I claim that it's true, and then I move on. Because I have the faith, that's all that I really need. Sometimes we, we boil it down. But if you remember... We defined faith earlier on as the knowledge that Jesus can and the hope that he will. That's what we defined faith as earlier. The knowledge that Jesus can is the awareness that Jesus is not you. He's better than you. That's not just, that's not just some sort of blanket, abstract faith kind of thing. That is a real hardcore knowledge that Jesus is a real person and he's better than I am. And so that's, that's the bottom line of the faith. But if you notice, the people around him, they couldn't receive him for the specific reason that they thought they knew. I find it interesting that the people who act like they know Jesus the best are often the people who are the farthest from letting him actually be him. Because we're like that. Jesus, I know you. Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. Jesus, I'll tell you what kind of king you're supposed to be. You just be the king I tell you to be, and then we're on good terms with each other. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus isn't waiting around for you to tell him who to be. He is God in the flesh, and he's waiting around for your eyes to be opened to receiving that. And so at this point, we are primed, primed to actually pay attention to the number one parable in this chapter. It's the parable that starts the chapter. It's the parable that people who've never been to church might know. It's the parable of the sower and the soils. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to begin in verse 1. It'll be up on the screen, but I'm going to read it from here too. It says this, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds, large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered away because they had no root." Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. See, at the beginning of this parable, 
Jesus says that line. It's the, it's the second time we've seen it this morning, the first time he actually said it in this chapter. Whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, just having ears isn't good enough. You also have to hear. Jesus is going to be saying something to people that he knows will be hard for them to understand. And the reason Jesus is using the parables for his teaching is specifically because he wants some people to not understand. This is really, really important. Jesus is intentionally using a method of teaching because he wants some people to not get it. I'll prove that to you. Keep reading. Verse 10, then the disciples came to him and asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. I want to pause there for just a little bit, okay? Jesus says he speaks in parables because the disciples get the knowledge, but the others don't. Now, the interesting thing is that at this point, the disciples also haven't gotten the knowledge right? The disciples, in just a few verses, they're going to ask Jesus, what what did this parable mean? Give us the definition. They don't understand it. There's, you see, the people who are following Jesus don't understand it. The people who are the fringe don't understand it. And Jesus says he's speaking in parables because he wants the followers to get it, but the fringe to not. Here's the interesting question. What's the only difference between the followers and the fringe? The followers follow. The fringe stays on the outside. You see, the disciples don't know the secrets either. But Jesus is specifically telling this story because he wants someone close enough to him to say the words, Jesus, tell me more. Jesus, teach me more. What he's about to say to his disciples is the answer to the question. Jesus, please explain this parable. And the problem for you and for me is that you might be a fringe person and you're going to get the secret. And you're going to think that because you've gotten the secret, now you are one of the disciples. But that's not the way it works. It's not that because you've heard the secret, because you've heard the answer, that makes you a disciple. It's the other way around. It's if you're a disciple, then you will stick around long enough to hear the answer. And the answer that you just read as a fringe person, you're not going to understand anyway, but you're going to think you understand it. And one of the things Jesus is terribly afraid of is that you would think you understand when you really don't. That's why he speaks in a way that people know they don't understand. Because if you hear that story and you don't have any context and you don't have any explanation, you don't know what it means. And so you're going to walk away and you're going to like, I don't know what it means. Your mom says, what did Jesus say today? I don't know. He told us some story. I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand it. But at least you know that you don't know. The problem is that when you think you know, then you get yourself into trouble. But keep reading. Jesus says, the secrets have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is specifically fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah that says, my people will see the answers, but not get it. My people will hear the answers, but not get it. 
And Jesus is like, I desperately need you to know that you don't know what you think you know. I desperately need you to know that you don't understand me. I desperately need you to realize that I am beyond your understanding. And you can't understand me unless I give it to you. And anything you think you understand from me, unless I'm the one who has given given it to you directly, you don't understand it. And if you get confused by Jesus, raise your hand and cheer because you're in good company. Stick around and he might reveal the secret to you. But if you are one of these people and you think you know Jesus, or you're one of these people and you don't understand Jesus and you move along, either one of those two people are messed up because there's only one kind of person who's likely to get into the kingdom of heaven, and that's a person who says this, Jesus, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't have a clue who you are. I don't understand you at all, but I'm sticking with it. I will receive you. I will be receptive to you. And even though I don't understand anything you are or what you're saying or what you're doing in this world, I will receive it. Receptivity is the first and most important thing. And I can prove that because Jesus actually makes that the first soil he talks about in this parable. Because he's going to describe what he means by it. Keep reading. It says this, verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. And here's the answer. Here's the secret. You're going to get the secret without the lingering around with Jesus. He says this. Here's the parable. Verse 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, like Jesus is intentionally telling them stuff that they can't understand, right? When they hear it and they don't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Okay, so there's an understanding thing that comes right early on. And you need to know that Jesus is using the word understanding in two different ways simultaneously. There's the understanding that is the what I have, what I have heard I don't understand. That's the first kind of understanding. There's a second kind of understanding that says, what I have heard, I have not absorbed. That's the second kind of understanding. Jesus speaks in parables so that everyone experiences the first kind of understanding. I heard him say stuff and I don't get it. But he is now speaking about the soil using the second kind of understanding. This is soil that was around long enough to hear something but they didn't absorb it. It stayed on the surface, and so Satan could just snatch it away. Keep going. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. So they've been receptive. They've crossed that line, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. So they were receptive but they could not endure. They were not persistent. Keep reading. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus speaks in parables because he wants people to not understand him initially because their hearts are calloused. The problem with a calloused heart is that it will only let in the old. See, my fingers have calluses on them from playing guitar. The callous exists because a couple weeks ago my fingers were hurting. The callus exists because I damaged my hand playing the guitar a couple weeks ago when they hurt. But when you keep giving the old stimulus over and over and over again, you eventually get to the place where the callus now understands how to deal with that old stimulus and no new stimulus can get in. Sometimes when I've been playing my guitar really, you know, a lot for, you know, a couple weeks or so, I could literally take a needle from like my wife's sewing kit or something and not need a thimble at all. You could just, you know, use use your callus and, and nothing new is getting in there because the old is so strong. Jesus is like, I'm telling you some things that you're not gonna understand. One reason you're not gonna understand them is because you can't let anything new in. 
That's the callous. That's the receptivity issue. That's the concern there. But there are two other things that might keep you out of the kingdom. The first one is lack of receptivity. The second thing that could keep you out of the kingdom is from lack of endurance. The kingdom is the greatest thing of all time, and it's right around the corner. It's happening here and now, but you might miss it from lack of endurance. Jesus says a parable, and some people on the fringe walk away in their confusion, and some people stay. Jesus talks about the seed falling on the, on the stony soil, the rocky soil. The soil could receive it, but because of the rocks underneath the surface, the roots couldn't go down deep. And since the roots couldn't go down deep, when hardship came, the whole thing just died. In your life, hardship is going to come. I say this every time I study this passage or, or teach on this passage. You have to know the, the principle of the root system. Roots don't grow during the drought. During the drought, you need to have the roots already there. The only way for you to survive the drought is to have roots that are deeper than the drought before the drought. So you need to invest in the things that can't be seen. You need to invest in the roots. You need to invest in the spiritual connection between you and your Heavenly Father. If you've never confessed your sins to Him, if you've never followed Jesus in the waters of baptism, if you've never made that personal commitment to him and said, Jesus, wipe away my sin, fill me with your spirit, then you are missing a major spiritual root. You are missing a major spiritual root of having the Holy Spirit be at work in your life. If you say, listen, I'm just not going to learn anymore. I'm just going to take what I've already learned and I'm just not going to learn anymore. I'm not going to try to grow my knowledge. Then you are missing a major spiritual root. You might have the spiritual stuff of your relationship with the Holy Spirit, but you don't have the knowledge stuff that He's given to you in His Word. If you don't have a relationship with God's people, a loving relationship with God's people, then you are missing a major spiritual root. If you have not experienced sacrificial service in this world, you are missing a major spiritual root. We call them our four core values around here. Having God at the top of everything, being committed to spiritual and personal growth, being committed to the family of God, being committed to serving the world around us. This is what we call our four core values or our, our core elements of this church. And they're all there just because we think you need to have a root system that goes deeper than the drought. Endurance. A lack of it can make you miss out on the kingdom. And there's one more thing that you can miss out can cause you to miss out on the kingdom. It's a lack of focus. The person who finds the treasure in the field and then he buries it again and then he goes off, if he forgot about the treasure, he would never get the treasure. If the man who sees the pearl walks away and forgets about the pearl, he will never get the pearl. If the seed is planted in the ground and it's growing, but now all these other things around it are, are covering the light so that it can't see the light, it only sees the other things, it's going to be distracted by all of that other stuff and the fruitfulness of that plant will be choked out, Jesus says. Anytime you allow your focus to go on something else, you have the chance of missing out on the kingdom. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in here just a little bit. Because over the last 18 months, last year, whatever, we have all experienced our moments of distraction. We've all experienced our moments of losing focus. And I just cannot let this slide anymore. I have to make sure we are clear on this. There are two major ways Christians today still lose our focus. Way number one is we build an idol. Now just to remind yourself, Idols are not things that replace God. Idols are things that symbolize God. The reason people in the Old Testament built idols is because they thought that idol symbolized the God they were worshiping. No one thought that the idol was actually the God they were worshiping. They thought the idol was a symbol of the God that they were worshiping, and maybe the God they were worshiping would sometimes inhabit that idol, but the idol and the God were different. Even the ancient people knew this. The idol was a symbol 
If you remember the story of the golden calf at the bottom of the Mount, of, uh, Mount Sinai, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments and the other laws, when that golden calf comes out, Aaron points to the golden calf and he uses the word Yahweh to talk about it. He says, look, nation of Israel, look, all you people, this is your Yahweh. Now, everybody knew that Yahweh was on the mountain. Maybe Moses had died, but now this calf symbolized Yahweh for them. What do we do? I tell you what, we Christians have built ourselves some idols, particularly in this world right now, of things that we think symbolize God. We will have our perspective on the world. And we will say, my perspective is the most godly perspective. We will have some policies that we support in this world. And we'll say, my policies are the godly policies, are the most godly policies. We will have our people, whether a politician or an entertainer or someone, we will have our people, and we will say, my people, my people are the most godly of the people. And we'll recognize that no one is godly, but my people at least are more godly than the other people's godly people. And what we do is we take these things from the world around us and we will act as if they are somehow godly when you have to realize there is zero chance of your perspective being godly. Because let's just remind ourselves, Jesus is walking on the planet speaking words that no one can understand because he is the son of God, God in the flesh on the planet. If God can be both three and one at the same time, then your perspective is always going to be wrong. Because you and I can't understand God. We can't put him in any kind of perspective box. And for us to assume that my perspective is a godly perspective or it represents God, that is an idol. It is a thing that I have chosen to symbolize God, but it does not. My perspective, my policies, the things that I support in this world, my policies for government, my policies for the church, my policies for my family, all of my policies are woefully inadequate because there's no way I can understand Jesus unless he reveals something to me directly. And as far as I can tell, there hasn't been any time in the pages of Scripture where Jesus said, has said anything about the current hot-button topic policies in our world today. You find me somewhere in Scripture where Jesus talks about the pros and cons of a stimulus package, and I will smack you on the face because you have a different Bible than mine. I kid you not. We get ourselves so wrapped up in these things as if they are godly, but they are just idols. But there's also another thing that can cause us to lose our focus. An idol is when you've chosen something that you think symbolizes God, but there's also the other God that we could worship. The God of money, the God of power, the God of influence, the God of significance, the God of safety, the God of security, the God of comfort. We can worship all of these other gods as a replacement for our God who calls us to sacrifice and serve. But I'm just going to be very, very clear. The kingdom of heaven is the greatest thing ever. It's here right now. But you might miss it. You might miss it because you're not receptive to Jesus and who he really is. You might miss it because you have been, you've been wandering away. You didn't endure through the difficult circumstances. You might be missing out because you've been distracted and your focus is not on Jesus himself. Your focus is on something else that you think is Jesus-like. But this good soil. Have you noticed Jesus doesn't tell us anything about the good soil? He doesn't tell us the color of the soil. He doesn't tell us anything else about the soil. This is one of the most profound lessons from this whole parable. Are you ready for this? The soil that is good is the one that's not the other ones. The soil that's good is the soil that is not the rocky soil and unreceptive, the hard path and unreceptive. It's not the rocky soil and fails to endure. It's not the distracted soil and fails to produce fruit. The good soil is just the soil. It's just the dirt. Because see, God's word is going to do a thing in you. And you don't have to worry about making it happen. It's going to do a thing in you. The mustard seed grows into a tree. The yeast works through the whole dough. 
God's kingdom just happens. You don't make it happen. You don't have to struggle with it. You just let it happen. If you're coming face to face with a receptivity problem, receive. If you're coming face to face with an endurance problem, just hang out, stick with it. If you're coming face to face with a distraction problem, close your eyes. Move away from that thing because Jesus' word will produce the fruit. You just have to be dirt and let it happen. This whole passage is Jesus trying to tell you that there is a kingdom that is coming. It's here right now, and he does not want you to miss out. So let me share with you one final verse. 46 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The greatest thing ever is easy to miss. You can see it and you can walk away from it. You can see it and be unreceptive. You can see it and not experience it. But if you give yourself if you devote your life to it, if you hand your heart over to Jesus, then you receive it. You're in it. You will have it. You will possess it. And you will bear fruit in the midst of it. Jesus' promise is amazing. You and I still have a decision to make. Do I want this kind of king? Do I want this kind of kingdom? But if the answer is yes, the greatest thing of all humanity, the greatest thing of all history, the greatest thing of all time is within my grasp, and I will never lose it. It's easy to miss, but I will never lose it if I simply just give myself to the Jesus who has it. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.